All right. Good morning. Good evening. Good afternoon. Whatever time you're listening to the show, my name is Blythe Bromley, and this is another edition of the Scouting Report that originally appears on BonjourWithBlythe.com, and it's an entrepreneur's journey into the wins, the losses, and everything in between. And in every episode, I like to cover the digital marketing news you might have missed, how that plays into your own strategy, the wins and losses for me, what you can learn from that. Hopefully, those tips can can apply into your own business, and then I like to mix in a little personal story or two. Now, as sort of the roadmap for this week's show, we're going to dive into Disney Plus. Uh, content planning ideas for 2020, one company's big email marketing mistake, and why you should consider using time as a commodity. Now, a little bit of housekeeping before we dive in, just to, you know, I guess borrow a phrase from another podcaster that I really like, Sam Harris. Uh, before we dive into this show, I wanted to sort of break down and make it, and not break down, I'm going to fully break it down later on and explain why I'm doing it this way, but I'm going to be starting off with a new show format. Now, nothing within this show, if you're listening to the show, will change. Uh, this is still an audio first experience, but if you follow me on YouTube at Blythe Brum, then you will also notice that I've started recording video to go along with these podcasts. Now, in, in I, like I said, I'm going to fully dive into why I'm doing this, but I just want to, to be able to respect people's time. And some of these shows are going longer than I would particularly like, but when sometimes I just get a little long-winded, sometimes I just, you know, start going and I go off on a tangent and sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it, you know, I might be wasting your time, but I want to, to break these shows down into where I can upload the full show to the podcast feed and then a few days later start uploading uh, what I would like to call different segments or, or, or different best of parts of that same show but just in the same podcast feed. So if you were only interested in hearing one part of the show, then you can just wait until those other episodes drop later on in the week. Or if you want to listen to the full show, I mean, God bless you. Uh, thank you for doing that because uh, it really it, it, it helps, you know, podcasters like myself uh, know that what we're doing is a good thing. And that um, but I also want to respect the people's time out there who maybe only have 15 or 20 minutes to listen to a certain thing and they want to pick exactly what they want to listen to. So I just want to make sure that I'm being accommodating to everyone. But let's go ahead and dive into this week's show. First up on the list I want to talk about is Disney Plus. And obviously, they've taken over the conversation on all platforms, all social media networks, um, the water cooler discussions. They have basically knocked it out of the park as far as, well, knocked it out of the park. Yeah, I, I would say knocked it out of the park. Um, at least they got a triple out of this because... There's so much stuff going on in today's news cycle. You got the impeachment bullshit. You, your, your football team, if you're a Jaguars fan or really like any other team besides like five teams, then, then your football team's probably gone to shit. Holiday pressure is starting to come up. Um, everyone's yelling at each other online for whatever they're fake mad about for the day. Um, but I think that that's where Disney Plus has come in and it's sort of given us that nostalgia, that feel good content that you know that you can just plop down on the couch at the end of the day and you can turn off all social media and you can just turn on a movie that makes you feel good or a show that makes you feel good. And, and I think that with a lot of, of, of content that we see nowadays, you, you, you notice that, oh, everything's a remake or, you know, everything's a sequel or, you know, a, a trilogy. 
I think that that's where the industry and consumer sentiment is starting to lean because, or not starting to lean. It's definitely been heading in that direction for a, a, a few years now is that movie companies, especially bigger ones, don't want to invest a lot of money into a franchise that's going to flop. So that's why you're seeing more and more investment into remakes. I mean, we see it with, I, I'm talking about Disney Plus or, or, or Disney right now, but we see it with the remakes, the live, quote unquote live action remakes for all of their nostalgic franchises, which are now coming out in the live action remakes. And it's safer for those companies to just reinvest their movie budgets into franchises like that than they would to just invest it into a totally new platform. Um, so I think that that's where Disney Plus is really hitting the nail on the nail on the head when it comes to releasing all of their nostalgic content, all of the, you know, the movies that were in the vault, the, the hypothetical vault. Um, but I think that that's where Disney is is taking more or less that that step above everyone else and every other platform where you can have an affordable place where you can just detach from everything. You can detach from the world, watch something that that I guess makes you feel good, and and you could spend. You you find yourself almost in an attention driven economy. Then you could find yourself spending more time watching and engaging with things that make you feel good versus you know participating in you know some of the other thing I, I i'm an avid twitter user and and i go back and forth with the platform where i'm sick of it and i'm sick of the negativity and and i i just want to read something that's interesting i want to read something that's going to inspire me and you could probably say that uh, that's probably more on the people that i follow and the things that i engage with but since the launch of disney plus my screen time last week was down five hours from the previous week and 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 I give full credit to to disney plus and 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 I'm not sure like what sort of says or what it says about you whenever you're picking and choosing what things to watch. I know the first thing that I chose to watch on Disney Plus is I wanted something in the background while I was cooking dinner and Sleeping Beauty was the first thing that I put on and it, it had tip to the beautiful animation with that but it just got me on this nostalgia train and I don't know how long this nostalgia train is going to last. It probably will last a while because there's a shit ton of content on Disney Plus right now. There's a lot of cartoons I got to catch up on but I've, I've watched Sleeping Beauty, uh, Aristocats, uh, Rescuers Down Under, which is very, uh, god damn, that's an underrated movie. Uh, Gargoyles, another underrated show. I've only gotten through the first few episodes, but damn, the writing is so good on a, a cartoon that really only had a few seasons. And, and so I'm in the middle of watching that as well. Also Mandalorian, of course, I'm a huge Star Wars fan. And, and I think that that show is is really almost like a breath of fresh air or, or I guess not a breath of fresh air, but a, a sigh of relief for a lot of Star Wars fans who, have, you know, the Star Wars fans are some of the, the biggest complainers on the Internet, especially with this newer sequel trilogy. And they just complain about everything. And I, I, I'll raise my hand that I, I've complained about a lot of stuff, but The Mandalorian seems to be like that show that all Star Wars fans are sort of just gravitating towards. It's really well done. It's almost like a space type Western show. And if you follow any of, of, of George Lucas's original concept for uh, the original Star Wars trilogy, then you know that that's what that that's the kind of show he's all or that's the kind of franchise that he's always wanted to have, you know, more of that space, uh, that space Western vibe to it. And then, of course, a baby Yoda, like I collectively, how often do you see the Internet come together and collectively love something as much as baby Yoda? 
Uh, so, so that's been a really fun thing to be a part of. And, and I, I especially love that with some of these series that, that Disney Plus is also launching at, at, at an episodic rate and not just, you know, where it's a net, it's, it's, yeah, uh, I guess what, what I'm trying to say is that the binge watching with Netflix is really great. I love being able to sit down. Like right now, I'm, I'm also watching The Crown. And I love being able to go right to the next episode to find out what happens next. But on the flip side, I really love how they're debuting, Disney Plus is debuting The Mandalorian, where they're debuting the shows every Friday, or that's what the tentative schedule is. I think there's just a couple weeks where, where that's it, it doesn't debut on a Friday. But more or less, majority of the time, it's going to be debuting on on a Friday. So it gives you that weekend, it gives you that full week to talk about the show with your friends, where do you think the show is going to go, um, Reddit threads, YouTube videos is my vice. Um, but I, I love digesting all of that type of content too. And I find that I, I get much more attached to a show when it releases one episode at a time, you know, sort of that, that Game of Thrones community vibe to it. Uh, just you know, it's a lot less yelling this time around with with, with Star Wars fans. Now, I, I, I do think that there are some things that need to be improved with the platform. Uh, the subtitles, I think, is one of my bigger complaints, uh, especially with The Mandalorian, that the subtitles are appearing slightly before it's actually being spoken in the show. So it almost kind of like gives a, gives away before you can actually experience it in a, in a full spectrum, if that makes sense. Uh, and I, I do, there, there's another hiccup too. I think with when you're watching episodes, it will go to the next episode, but if you accidentally, you know, just X out of the platform or or X out of whatever show you're watching to, to browse the rest of the, the catalog that Disney Plus has, then it sometimes will mess up and then you can't go back to the place that you were at when you were watching the show. It just immediately just reloads and starts over. So I think that that's, <clears throat> it, it's sort of a lesson in that even the biggest companies in the world like Disney Plus, like they're going to launch their, their product when they have all the content and when the content is really good and they know that the technical details will work themselves out. And I, and I think that that's super relatable because for someone, you know, like a podcaster or a vlogger or, or anybody that's out there creating content and they sort of have that intimidation factor, that fear of equipment that I've talked about before. It's one of those situations where you can look at a big ass company like Disney and say, well, they launched and the platform isn't perfect. They, they know that, I think fa a lot of fans know that Disney's going to work it out. They're going to make that user experience top notch. But even the biggest companies fall are, are guilty of, of launching a product when it's not perfect. And I think as long that that's sort of a, a testament to a lot of you guys out there that if you're, you're you've been sitting on some content for a while, uh, maybe you're 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 scared that you don't have the right microphone or or you don't have the right equipment set up that you, you as long as the content is there and it's bearable to listen to, it's not like people screaming in the background or anything, then I think that, that that's a situation where you can look at Disney and you can say, well, if they did it, I can do it too. So I think that that's one of the, the, the bigger takeaways 
ways for me is is that Disney Plus is is definitely already a force to be reckoned with. Ten million subscribers on the first day of their launch, and and really ever since then, I think a lot of fans, especially for like football fans like myself, like the Jaguar season is, season has already gone to shit. So this is a, a perfect example for for me to just be able to relax on the weekend and and enjoy a stress free environment. So I came across a couple articles this week that really speaks to the overall mantra of treating time as a commodity. And now the, the the first article that I read was a really fascinating deep dive into the NFL's sort of worry as a whole, like as a league for these two franchises that are moving to LA in the Rams and the Chargers in the situation where they're not particularly winning. Uh, these are franchises, I mean, you're talking about the Rams, where they were just in the Super Bowl last year, so they were expected to be, you know, on, on the on the come up, and, you know, they haven't done so hot this year. Uh, then you also have the Chargers, which are just, um, like, their whole organization is, is, is kind of just a, a joke right now. Uh, but you have the, a situation where the NFL as a whole really thought that fans would switch their attention, and thus their time and money, to from one city to a new city, whereas fans in San Diego and fans in St. Louis will just, you know, just completely forget about their loyalties to the city that they live in, probably maybe the city that they grew up in, and they would just switch their NFL loyalty to uh, their teams essentially leaving, leaving all of these economic opportunities, all of these entertainment opportunities uh, for, you know, the shiny bright lights of Los Angeles. Los Angeles being a transplant city who really only care about the Lakers and the Dodgers. You can make an argument that they cared about the Los Angeles Raiders back in the day, but LA just really isn't the biggest sports town. They have a lot of transplants there. They have a lot of entertainment options. And, and the NFL as a whole wants to, they, they wanted to move these franchises to this city in order to take advantage of that media market. But in this article, they really dive into just the, I guess the, the internal conflicts that's going on within owners, within these billion dollar owners who frankly just, you know, they, they have millions and millions of dollars to spend on, on marketing and, and, and user sentiment and, and they don't necessarily, uh, they're, they're kind of realizing, you know, a few billion too late that fans, sports fans, just casual fans as a whole aren't going to support a team that's winning by either watching it on TV or even attending a game live. And and I think it more or less has to do with, you know, we, we've talked on this show about Disney+, Plus, a little bit of Netflix, um, but just the entertainment options as a whole has started to shift over the recent years where people just want to stay home, right? They don't, they, they want to get Uber Eats and they want to put on Netflix and they want to binge watch a show for an entire day or they want to just stay in their pajamas um, and, and just enjoy that at-home experience. And, and, and sports as a whole is sort of experiencing this too, right? I mean, you look all across the country and you see empty stadiums and collectively like media people who cover sports as a full-time job um executives that that work in sports just are are almost taken aback that and and shocked that people wouldn't necessarily go and spend 10 hours of their day down at a football stadium and pay $300 because the the league as a whole has priced them out and then on top of that if your team isn't winning 
people are less likely to to invest emotionally in that team if they're not winning and they've been overpriced out of the market. Uh, so I think that that is is it goes back to the, the the central theme of time is so important and why would you spend it with a losing team? And especially with making a, a losing effort, so it, it, there, there's sort of that mantra that probably needs to die. That you should support your team no matter what, and you should watch every game no matter what. And and that is sort of just an an older way of thinking, I think, or or just a a sports pastime way of thinking that you should support the team no matter what with both your time and your money, even though you're getting priced out and even though the team isn't necessarily winning. But it also kind of relates to this other article that I read that was a little bit eyebrow raising, but it's perhaps something that, you know, us freelancers or people who work in, in, you know, a business where you're charging for services and services cost money. And this article by Anna Cordero Rado, and I probably butchered the pronouncing of that name, so I apologize in advance. Uh, but she wrote an article in Medium that says, why I charge people to get coffee with me. And when I first read it, I was like, Ooh, or I first read the headline before I actually read the article and got the meat of it, like a lot of people. Um, then I understood her perspective a, a, a lot more. Um, because I, I, you know, at a few shows ago, I talked about the value of, of going to networking events, but also the important value of picking networking events that you're passionate about, that you think that either will help inspire you or help educate you or possibly has future business opportunities for you. You know, th- th- there's got to be some kind of an ROI attached to networking events that you go to. But one of the the little known time sucks of, of being an entrepreneur or, or being in the freelance space is that lots of people want to have pick your brain meetings. And you have to decide if you are going to entertain that or not. And I think that for a lot of business owners, especially new business owners, that you're just so initially excited that people want to learn about your services. And that's a good thing, right? And and what happens, though, quickly is that you learn that not a lot of these meetings uh, result in a positive outcome for you, meaning a positive outcome where you're going to get business from it, or you're going to get something valuable from it. And, and that's what sort of struck me with this article is that I and, and I, I'm on before I go any further, I, I'm going to talk about a little bit about her position, because the way she framed this article is that a big software company reached out to her and wanted the the owner actually reached out to her and wanted her feedback on a new tool that he was developing. So her being in that space uh, for a very long time, she responded back that she was happy to do so. And here's my fee for doing that. And the guy never responded. Uh, he essentially was looking for free advice and did not uh, did not expect to have her reply back. Well, he did. No, I, I take that back because he did respond, but he said, let me see if we have the budget for that and then never responded back to her. So he did initially respond. So I take that part back, but he responded in a way that like, look, this isn't going to happen unless you're going to give me some free advice here. So she was a little bit miffed at that because... She offers a lot of things as a service and she charges her time is her commodity. And and so she wrote this article 
basically as an educational article for businesses and people who are looking for those pick your brain meetings to essentially stop asking for, for, for meetings like that. That you need to respect the freelancer's time or you need to respect the marketer or, or whatever profession they're in. If, if time is a commodity for them, which it really is for any, you can make an argument that it really is for any business, but especially for freelancers where you have so little time in the day and, and whatever time you spend at a pick your brain meeting, that's less time that you get to spend on your own business or helping paying clients. And so in this article, and, and, and this is a quote actually from, uh, that she used within the article itself. This isn't her saying it, but she says, or the article says, professional advice is valuable. So if you want it for free, then you'd better be willing to trade something in exchange or have a strong enough relationship with the individual to get that advice for free. It says Joe Wiggins, he's a career trends analyst at Glassdoor. And so she she further explains, now this is her talking, Anna Cordero, Cordeo Rado, uh, I'm just going to call her ACR. ACR says, it's something that women on the receiving end of these requests in particular would do well to remember. From offering to take the, taking the minutes during meetings to organizing the birthday cake for colleagues, it's the female employees who tend to be the most visibly helpful. This cultural expectation of women as professional caregivers can often be detrimental to our own careers and personal boundaries. And I thought that that was really, that, that that was the comment that got a lot of people, um, I guess, upset in the comments where people were not upset, but emotionally reactive, where people were applauding that part. Because it it, it, it is, I, I can only speak from personal experience, where when I did work in an office and I was an executive assistant, it was my job to organize all the potlucks. It was my job to organize, you know, the, the, the gift giving around Christmas time and the secret Santas and... Um, um, if it's somebody's birthday, then it's my job to organize the the singing of the happy birthday and, you know, all that stuff that you, uh, you don't necessarily, you, you see men participating in, but in my personal experience, I've, I've never experienced a man organizing those in a workplace setting. Now, outside of work, I see it all the time, but in a workplace setting, it's, it, it is usually the women who, who step up to, to, to do things like that where they're taking away from their job. So they're, they're, it's, it, she's almost hinting in this article, ACR is almost hinting that, you know, women have a tough time saying no. And she applies it back to this time as a commodity and that you should pay for pick your brain meetings. And, and I think that she's right in a sense, but I think it's also on the onus of the person to either accept or reject, right? If you get a, a meeting request like this and you are stressed for the week and you you are completely packed, there's a right way and a wrong way to handle that meeting request. You could say, it's not a priority right now for me, which is kind of a jerk thing to say, right? Uh, but it's also an honest truth. If, if someone is wants you to review their software or to review their website and tell me what you think, Sometimes you don't have the time to do that, but on the flip side, it can actually be really rewarding to to help somebody, especially if it's if it's an up and coming 
uh, freelancer or, or for me, for, you know, to, to use another personal like, uh, story from, from my end, I love it when bloggers reach out to me and, and ask me, you know, to review their website or give them tips or things like that to an extent. I, I love it when they reach out because it says, wow, you know, I'm doing something that people really respect enough to contact me and ask for advice. I love that because I feel like it's almost like me giving back in a way, like giving back to if I I try to think about it from that perspective, where if I was in their shoes, what would I want to know at that age in my career life? And I remember being at that age in my career life and reaching out to a few women who I really respected in the industry. And they brushed me off. All of them brushed me off. So it was a situation where I just had to figure it out for myself. Um, so I, I think that she's kind of, she she's hitting the nail on the head with a lot of what this article says, that women just in general should should start to be more, uh, take more of an authoritative role in the workplace. And then if you're not working in a traditional office space, then you can also treat it as either an investment or you can be brave enough to ask for a fee like this woman did. And and I think that in you have to sort of gauge it on a case by case basis. I I I think that there there are a lot of problems where people are searching for free advice and they're just unwilling to do the Google search or do the Google legwork because it really is like there is an answer for you out there. Google probably does have it. Um, but I think that there's also a strength in asking for a fee for services that you provide. And and the trick is, I think, in how you ask it. So in this particular article, I went straight to the comments after I read it because it was it was filled with like lots of useful advice and then just lots of angry people. But if you ignore the angry people, there were actually a lot of uh, of really creative solutions and and a couple of these creative solutions that, that I picked out that maybe will help you in in your I guess in, in how you deal with a situation like this is to if you want to charge for a meeting, a pick your brain coffee date. It's perfectly acceptable if you word it in a way that, hey, I usually charge for these services. Instead, I'm going to give you a discount so that you can, you know, in enjoy my perspective, my, you know, however long you've worked in the industry, that's valuable too. But you can either charge for that meeting or a creative solution. You can say, I'm going to charge you this, but you can use this fee and apply it to future services if you, as a credit, should you ever purchase services from me in the future. And I think that that was really a, a, a smarter solution where Say if you are the person that's asking for a pick your brain meeting, then it, it the onus is on you to take a step back and to say, okay, well, if I'm going to pay for this meeting, I need to know what kind of value I'm going to get out of it. And I need to come with a, I need to come prepared. I need to come proper. I need to know what questions I need to get, I need to get answered before my allotted time is up. So it, it really puts the onus back on the person asking for the meeting to get super specific of, of what they want from you and why. Um, you can also do that with someone and not charge them, right? That, that's another solution where you could make it to 
to where, okay, well, let's cut to the fucking chase. Like, th- there's there's probably plenty of situations where you meet up with someone for coffee and you do the normal small talk and then you get into the meat of the discussion. But it could take a while to get to the meat of that discussion. So what this one person did is is they said, yes, I, I, I charge for these meetings, but it's a very nominal fee. I think it was like 49 bucks or something like that for a two-hour meeting with someone, which is, you know, an hour, hour and a half is about the normal length of a pick-your-brain coffee date or or happy hour, however long it lasts. Um, but she charges a nominal fee, but she also wants to make sure that that person gets the most bang for their buck, so they get the most value going in. And, and sometimes what this other person suggested, too, is that they send a form automatically to the person that has a list of questions out of what they want of what they want the person to start thinking about ahead of time. So for example, I have like a bunch of, you know, web design questionnaires that I send out. If someone gets a website or purchases a website from me, they're purchasing at an extremely affordable rate, but I'm going to ask them a lot of tough questions. The only thing is I'm not going to ask them these tough questions on the phone or in a meeting. I'm going to send you a questionnaire and you have to really sit down and think about your business and, and how you want how you want it presented to the world. What other businesses do you like? What other, you know, websites do you not like? Are there any features that you see online that you'd really love to have on your site? So I think putting those questions at the forefront and getting that person to answer them ahead of time will save you a lot of time. It'll save the other person a lot of time. And then people are getting value out of that. And, and or both of you are getting value out of that. Another really great solution that I saw and I, I personally love this, so I, I think that I'm going to incorporate this in the future with, with some of my marketing meetings that I have. And it's offer to do the meeting, but you can record it. And so that is a completely new perspective where it's it's sort of the Gary V model where you are documenting, you're not creating. So you are recording, and obviously you have to, you know, have the person agree to that ahead of time. But if they're looking for free advice, then that could be the condition that you say, like, look, I, I am more than willing to do this for you. But I want to use this meeting as a learning opportunity for my audience, right? So what you could do is record the meeting and then that's content that you can use for your business. You can probably repurpose that content, uh, you know, hundreds of different ways. And then you're providing value to your audience. So and then you're also providing value to that time and that you invested into that coffee meeting. So it's not a hard no or I don't have time to have this pick your brain meeting. And it's also like kind of not a, yeah, you can, we can have a meeting, but you got to pay for it. Like you got to pay to hang out with me, Um, which would, gosh, that would be super nice if people like paid to hang out with you. Um, Or maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. I, I would have to think about that a little more. That was just a little like off tangent thought, but I love that requirement on if treating your time as a commodity but during these pick your brain meetings and, you know, if your sports team has gone to shit, um, you can just more or less focus on on how you can be the most productive throughout your day by ignoring your sports team. And then if somebody wants to have a little pick your brain meeting, then what you can do is you can say, OK, I just want to set up my camera phone or I want to set up a couple little microphones to record this conversation. So then that way I can use it in the future uh, for, for future content that will not only 
help the person that you're meeting with, but it'll help you and it'll help your audience that if you're not already creating content for, you absolutely should be. Okay, now it is time to dive into content planning specifically for 2020 and beyond. Now, this is another tidbit that I got from Gary Vaynerchuk, who is a famous entrepreneur. Uh, he puts out, if you are any kind of social media channel, you have probably seen his content in some way or another. He just is straight killing it on, on so many different platforms. And he recently came out with a deck, another deck, that says it called his 64-piece content plan. And he's since upped the Annie because this original piece, the 64 piece content plan, he says that you should be posting it every, every 64 pieces of content every single day. But he's upped the Annie recently where he says that you should be publishing now a hundred pieces of content a day. And for the overwhelming majority of us, like that sounds insane. It sounds unachievable. It, it doesn't sound like something you could realistically do. But when you start to break it down in this deck, and, and I'll share a link to this particular deck. I'll put it in the show notes and I'll put it up on, on both bonjourwithblight.com and digitaldispatch.io. Uh, but I will put the entire deck in there. And he talks about how he starts off with a piece of content on one platform and then repurposes it to other platforms, but changes the verbiage in, in relative to whatever content or whatever platform he he's putting that content on. So, for example, he sends a tweet out, and in the deck it says it took him, what, 19 seconds to create this tweet. He's going to screenshot the tweet and then post it to Instagram. And he's going to make it, you know, he's going to crop it and, and make it look nice, but it's clearly a tweet, and that is then repurposed to Instagram. So then he changes the verbiage a little bit in his caption on Instagram, and poof, he's got a brand. That's the second piece of content that you could be publishing. Then he takes that same tweet, and he takes that same screenshot, and he publishes, I think he adds another picture to it, like a motivational type picture or whatever, and publishes both of those to LinkedIn. And he changes the messaging up just a little bit. And also, if he's cursing in any of the, the, the platform or the, the content that he's repurposing, then he removes it for LinkedIn because his LinkedIn audience doesn't like cursing. So he, that's sort of the, the, I guess the central mantra of, of taking your content and moving it into different platforms and using those platforms as your distribution channels. But it all starts with a pillar piece of content. And, and that's what I try to do with this show. That's what I would advise for, for, you know, anybody who's watching this or digesting this, listening to this. To start with a pillar piece of content such as a YouTube video or a podcast, because if you take that pillar piece of content, then there's so many different ways that you can repurpose it to a variety of different channels where it looks like you're just dominant. I mean, it doesn't just look like it. I mean, you, you pretty much are if you're trying to follow the model of, you know, publish a hundred pieces of content a day, then you can use the value of that pillar piece of content in order to drive value value to all of the other platforms that you want that you're on. So let's use this show as an example. So I start off with this show with an audio first experience in mind. So I am recording a 
full show with multiple segments in it. Now, in those segments, I'm also recording a video at the same time. So if you watch this on YouTube, while I, you, you'll see me, you know, looking off at my show notes or maybe looking away. I'm not looking into the camera all of the time like I would, you know, a quote unquote normal YouTube video. So I like to keep this show audio first. So I think it's important to keep the podcast audience in mind first and foremost. And then the secondary, and I don't want to treat YouTube as a secondary show, but it, it kind or not a secondary platform, but it kind of is, um, in this example, any, anyways. So I start off with that pillar piece of content with five different, like for this show in, in, in particular, or, or however you're watching this, you might be watching this as an isolated segment, um, which that, that, uh, that point becomes mute then. So, from that podcast or from that video, I can then isolate each one of those segments. And then from that segment, I can then get digestible clips to put to social media, to put on blog posts that then drive traffic back to the original show or the original full show or the YouTube video. So let's take uh, YouTube, for example. YouTube, their algorithm of the next video up, that autoplay playlist is so vital and it's so very important and it's SEO driven. YouTube is the second largest search engine on the planet. So if you're coming to YouTube and you're putting in a particular search phrase or you click on a video to watch, they want to keep you on their platform for as long as possible. So what they're going to do is they're going to set up that autoplay feature relevant to or relative to the content that you're currently digesting. So if I'm putting up a content planning for 2020 YouTube video, if I'm isolating that segment out of the original podcast, then I'm publishing that video to YouTube. And then in the description box, I'm going to have, make sure you click on this other video to see the full show. And so that's where you can get YouTube to recommend more of your content, more of, of your channel's content. Um, maybe you can recommend it. it the, the point is, is to keep your audience engaged on YouTube because YouTube doesn't want your audience to leave. They, you, they want your audience to stay on YouTube for as long as possible, which is why that autoplay and that auto suggest feature is so very vital. So what they call that is they call it the hook. So you publish a segment to YouTube directing traffic to the full show and then that way it shows YouTube, okay, well, this is what this person is really enjoying and what they're liking. Let's see if we can serve them up some other content that from this same channel to keep them here longer. And so that's why you see uh, myself, for example, I have three different YouTube channels. I have a personal one that I've built up a personal brand where I will post the whole show and for people who want to enjoy the whole show. And then for the isolated segments, I'll publish them to their respective platforms. For example, in this full show, I'm going to have a segment where I have what I'm watching and what I'm listening to. But that particular segment is filled with logistics content. And so that logistics content, I'm going to isolate that segment from this show or from this video, however you're watching this, I'm going to isolate that segment and I'm going to upload it to my digital dispatch channel. And then that way, that logistics audience is more likely to engage with that content and then possibly engage with my other logistics specific content on that specific channel because I'm, I'm using one central pillar piece of content and then I'm using my distribution model 
to make the messaging relevant to that particular audience. Like the, you know, my sports audience, probably maybe most of them don't give a shit about logistics. So I'm going to keep that away from my personal channel. And the people who care about marketing probably don't give two shits about logistics or, or you know, my, my personal issues or, or, you know, trials and tribulations that I go to that I talk about on, on my personal channel. They probably don't give a shit. They just want the marketing news or the marketing tips and that's it. And so that's why I, I choose that isolated model where I can put the content that's relevant and that's YouTube specific. Now from those isolated segments, I'm going to, I'm not just going to do this on YouTube. I'm going to take that video file. I'm not going to no YouTube links. I'm going to take that file and I'm going to go to Facebook. I'm going to go to LinkedIn. I'm going to go to Twitter and I'm going to upload that video directly to that platform with messaging that's unique to that particular platform. Let's say, for example, uh, Twitter. I get sassy on Twitter all the time, all the time. If I take that sass and I publish something to Instagram, the response is a little bit different. The response is, oh my God, are you okay? Like, is everything all right? And I'm like, no, this is just, this is just my, this is who I am as a person. Like, I'm just a sassy person. And sometimes I fly off the rails and go on a little bit of rant. On Twitter, it's okay. On Instagram, people are like, um, do we need to have an intervention? Do, do we need to seek some help for you? Do you, do you need a break away? And it's like, no, no, I don't. This is just how it is away from Instagram. Where it, it, So that's a perfect example of like how you need to gear your messaging towards a particular platform that you're on. Gary Vee, not cursing on LinkedIn is another example of that because he curses in everything and he'll, he'll curse all day on Instagram, on Twitter, all of these different platforms, but his audience on LinkedIn doesn't like it doesn't think it's professional. So he bleeps it out for LinkedIn. So any video is exactly the same that he uploads to these other platforms, but he bleeps out the curse words for LinkedIn. And so that is another strategy. A lot of these social media platforms, they have a cap of a minute long video of what you can upload, um, especially if you want it to appear in the feed. And if you want it to appear in the feed, you have to do a direct upload, and sometimes you have time constraints on the content that you're uploading. But that could be another advantage and another way that you can hit that 100 pieces of content a day goal where you have a 60-minute podcast episode, and then you have a five-minute clip, and then you condense that down even further to pull quotes where you have a pull quote that's 10 to 15, maybe even 30 seconds long, and you upload that clip too, as well to social media with a link back to, hey, this is where you watch the full show, or this is where you watch the full segment. And then if they enjoy the segment, then they can go and watch the full show and then hopefully subscribe, hopefully sign up for your email list, uh, follow you on social media, uh, possibly even buy services from you in the future or, or buy your product or, or hire your company or whatever, uh, whatever your end goal is. And so when you break it down like that, that 100 pieces of content a day seems much more achievable, especially if you're using a tool like for, for me, example, I use CoSchedule and CoSchedule allows me to not only write up a blog article. So after I have a show that I record, I upload it to my podcast host, Buzzsprout. I upload the full video to YouTube. Then I have the isolated segments 
that I will then upload, but I'll stagger them afterwards. So I'll stagger, you know, for example, another example, um, Facebook video views was a show that I or a segment that I just did recently that was that looked to be pretty popular with the audience that uh, was listening to it, digesting it. So I took that segment, isolated it, made my own blog post specifically for that segment. And then that gives me another avenue, another piece of content that I can then add to co-schedule. I can write up all of my social media messages right within my WordPress website. And so I that one piece that one podcast has now turned into dozens and dozens of pieces of content for all my other platforms that I'm on. Um, and that can be a valuable tip for you guys to, to use as well is to repurpose your content and repurpose it in a way that you're recording it from the get knowing what your distribution strategy is going to be. I've heard some marketers say that you should spend about 20% of time on creating content and 80% of your time on the distribution of that content. So I mean, people... You have to think of yourself as, as you know, put yourself in your audience's shoes. So how many times a day do you maybe scroll Twitter? Do you maybe scroll Instagram? And you maybe, sometimes you get lost and like, you know, you, you look up and two hours have gone by and you've lost your, and you, and you don't know how to account for it. You've just spent it on social media. But sometimes, a lot of times, you're just opening up those platforms out of habit and you're, you scroll for 10 seconds and then you X off and you go and do something else. You have to take advantage of all of those people who are doing those things. So don't be afraid to publish the same thing over and over again. Don't be afraid to take one show and turn it into a hundred pieces of content. It's all about the distribution strategy because not everybody lives their life online 24 seven and not everybody has an account on all of these different platforms. So it's about knowing your audience, gearing that messaging towards that audience on that particular platform, and then from there, repurposing that content over and over using a tool like CoSchedule, because then it, it really will help you craft up all of those blog messages, all of those blog post messages that take so long to you know schedule and think about before I had co-schedule. And I swear, they're not paying me to say this. I just, I, I love using their platform. So I, that's why I'm, it's, it's been a huge help for me in order to have, you know, this is one woman shop and I'm not paying for marketing services yet because I am the marketing service. Um, but that, that should be in the near future for me. However, while it's still a one woman show, if you're a fellow freelancer out there, I think that these are really, really important takeaways. And while you might not hit the hundred posts a day, quota that Gary Vee is setting out, you need to at least strive for it because it's a numbers game and you have to be able to be able to keep up with the Joneses, whether you're a business, whether you're a, a solo entrepreneur, um, you're a growing freelancer, agency owner, whatever. Sometimes, you know, a, a lot of times if you are a business owner, a lot of times your business comes last, especially if it's client driven, because then all of your energy is spent for your clients and not for your own business. So content planning needs to be at the forefront of your business decisions and your business investments for 2020. And then using those tactics like the 64 piece content plan that Gary Vee puts out can, can be the base model of what you want to strive for as far as, you know, putting content out there and, and really trying to, to, to win the content game. And, and a little bit of a, a, a sidebar note and that I know it, it, this, 
this is sort of a lot of con a lot of information to take in, but hopefully it's a roadmap to your success in the future where you can say, okay, well, I can make that one pillar piece of content once or twice a month. And then from that pillar piece of content, I can have dozens and dozens, hopefully hundreds of pieces of content that I can then send out on a regular basis add it to, you know, a tool like CoSchedule, another tool like Buffer, um, all of these different platforms that will help you spread that message and make it so it's more or less like a set it and forget it. You shouldn't set it and forget it because sometimes things happen and those scheduled social media messages look really bad um, when they're when they are scheduled, say, if, you know, if a crisis breaks out, you know, a, you know, a terrible event happens or something and or updated news has happened uh, and, and you have scheduled messages that, that go out on a social media platform and you haven't exactly, um, you maybe have worded it in a happy way and something really sad is going on at the same time. So that's where you kind of, it's not necessarily a set it and forget it. Um, you still should should uh, pay attention to, to what you're posting, when you're posting, um, and just make sure you don't have to necessarily, you know, watch every single tweet that goes out. But you want to monitor what the situation looks like for the day. But a tool like Buffer, a tool like CoSchedule will help you manage all of the social media messages so that that way you can just check it almost like a calendar in the morning where you just open up your phone, you see the queue that's lined up, and you're good to go. So if something does hit the fan, uh, then you can go back in there and delete that tweet before it gets sent out. And then, you know, it, it saves you a lot of time and energy in, in that regard. But... Since that is a lot to sort of keep on, on, on your mind as 2020 comes, there's also what you want to keep in mind is your website in general. And, and I've put up a list for anyone who's interested. You can find my digital marketing checklist and you can download it for free. You can go to digitaldispatch.io. It's under the resources tab. I just added that tab last week as a central place for people to, to go to and see some of the, you know, the, the content upgrades that I have, tips and resources that you can download. It's a three-page PDF document, but you really only need one page, and it's a full checklist of everything that you need to have either on your website or make sure that it's a feature enabled on your website. Things like um, being uh, GDPR compliant, being ADA compliant, which is a growing concern. Um, also, you know, making sure your site is mobile optimized, um, having an SSL cer certificate. Um, what kind of analytics are you tracking? Things like that. So I, I put it in a nice, like, friendly one-page breakdown. And I'll go in more in depth on all of those topics, you know, at a, at a later time as content takes uh, much more of a priority in my own marketing strategies. But in case you're in the middle of, of thinking about what you want to do for 2020 and as you set those 2020 goals, I think it's really important to have at least everything on that checklist. You need to have it in, in the forefront of your mind as we go into the new year. Now, this segment started off way different than how I'm going to start this off. And I, I'm about to talk about a, a situation, personal situation that happened with me and a uh, pretty big company. Uh, but I thought after the first record, um, I sat on it, I, I slept on it, and I thought, you know, you didn't sound like, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't sound very nice in the video or the podcast, however you're listening to this. And essentially, if that company were to hear the advice I'm about to give and talk about this story, they probably know it was them that I was talking about. So I decided to re-record this part of the show 
to have it be more of a lesson to said company and to all of you guys out there who, who are thinking about your email marketing strategy for the rest of this year, 2020 and beyond. So to, to, to back it up a little bit, I had a situation happen where I was invited, I got an email, and I work in the logistics and trucking space, and I got an email about a free event that was going on in Orlando just a couple hours away from me, and it was a workshop almost set up kind of like a conference with a networking event, educational workshop with a networking event to follow. Now, me being so close to Orlando, I thought, well, as soon as I got the, first of all, I got the email, opened it up, saw the workshop notification. I said, wow, that that's something that I could go to and I can learn about the challenges that, because this particular uh, workshop was centered around the challenges software-wise, tech-wise, um, just overall business practices that uh, could be helpful to uh, a bunch of shippers out in the world. And I thought, well, my customers are shippers too, and so I need to know about these these challenges that they're facing so I can hopefully develop content in the future, um, develop solutions in the future to help ease that for them. I was using it as an educational opportunity for myself with a bonus part to network afterwards, maybe get some business from it, but more importantly to know what the challenges that my that part of my audience is is going to be facing, either facing now or in the future. I think that's very very important as a marketer, as a business owner, as a service provider that I understand those challenges and I develop solu- and I'm proactive about the solutions around it. So get the email, I get excited, uh, I contemplate it, I think, you know, travel schedule-wise, can I make it work, can I, you know, hotel, um, driving, you know, the, the, the dates, do they match up, all, all looks good. So I register for the event, it's a free event, too. So I register for the event, I get a little, you know, a little extra pep in your step for the day, then the next day rolls around, and I get an email from said company, essentially uninviting me <laughs> to the workshop, they I, they probably checked out my website, saw that I offered services, and they said, you're not our target demo, so we're uninviting you. They didn't say it in that many words, but obviously I can't get into too much of the verbiage of the actual email because then I could give away the company name. But needless to say, I was pretty pissed off. Like, I, I, I as a, on the receiving end of that email, I did everything you wanted me to do. I opened the email. I clicked on the CTA within the email and I registered for your event, for your event. Luckily, I didn't book my travel yet, so I'm not out any cash. But it, to send an email the following day uninviting me because of your mess up was completely I, I would not have done that as as a business owner. If I accidentally sent out an email to the wrong base, I would have notified them in mass. I would have done the same exact mass email, but sent it to the those same people and said, "I'm, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. We had a technical glitch. Uh, we, you know, we, we sent out an email an error. Please, you know, all of the invitations are going to be canceled." I was isolated. I, I was, I was, you know, signaled out and left out. And so now that that makes a it puts a sour taste in my mouth about this particular company, um, especially when they're a fairly large company and they probably have the budget 
in order to send out appropriate marketing messages to their target audience. I'm more than sure that they have the capabilities to do that. But it got me thinking of why email segmentation is so very important. And this is what I want to kind of just jump into and, and give out some free game to everybody that, that, that's sending emails, that is thinking about sending emails. And, and I think first and foremost, and especially to that company, hopefully they're watching this and so they'll take some email segmentation tips. Um, but I, first of all, I want to start off with put yourself in your audience's shoes. Out of the hundreds of emails per day, would your audience open the email that you're about to send? And if they opened it, would they take your desired action, which is clicking on a blog post link, signing up for a workshop, uh, any any kind of desired action that you have within that email, are they going to open it or are they going to take that action? And the best way to make sure that they do all of those things is to segment your emails. And you do this as, and you want to make a habit of regularly segmenting your email list, first of all. Second of all, you want to make sure that those segments best fit that audience and your intended message. So probably the next question is, well, well, how do I email segment? Well, first of all, if you're collecting emails on your website or, or you know, what, you know, maybe you bought an email list or, or, or whatever, however way you got that email list, uh, no judgment. A little bit of judgment, actually. Um, but if you are collecting emails on your website or in some other way, try to segment them from the get-go, from the jump. Um, isolate it. And, and you got to also figure out how you're going to segment your emails. How, what, are, what kind of emails are you going to send? Knowing what kind of emails you're going to send off the jump will help you craft that message and craft that segmentation a lot better. So you can do this by... Let's look at your, your current email list. Does location play a role? Does the user's email, their re- job responsibility, does that play a role? How old are they? Are they tech savvy? Are they tech challenged? Um, these are all factors plus many, many more. You can segment until you're blue in the face, um, which is ideally what you should be doing. Um, but admittedly, it's not what a lot of companies do. It should be something that should be a higher priority because as I've said before, your website and your email list are the only two things in the digital world that you will ever truly own. So treating those as your most important digital commodity is in your best interest. And it's also in your audience's best interest as well. So it's one of those things where you really have to, to, to make sure that you're collecting them correctly from the jump. And then if you do in the future want to send out more or other marketing messages to either test a small segment to see if that's something that they would enjoy receiving. Um, maybe you have a case study that just launched and you want to let your, your, your audience know about it. And so you send that out there. Maybe you launch an e-store and you want to let your audience know about that. Maybe you have coupons that are attached to your e-store and you want to send those out. Well, the damn coupons might not be interesting to the, to the person who signed up just to get a damn case study. So you have to start small test small and test frequently, and then also segment your email list as early on as you can, because sorting through email lists in the future can be really challenging, but it'll help you to avoid or uh, avoid, avoid situations like what this big company did, where they probably sent out a mass email and then got a bunch of users that signed up and registered for the event that they're not trying to target. 
So now they have to uninvite a bunch of people and it just looks bad all around. Like you've just made a lot of people feel upset who did exactly what you wanted them to do. And so the next time you send them an email, I wonder how many of those people are actually going to take the desired action. Probably not many because they're afraid they're going to get disinvited again. So segment your email list. If you have a sign-up form on your website, I would consider adding additional checkboxes to the emails that you're collecting. Um, do Are they getting updates to anything new that's been posted? Do they want insight from the leadership team? Do they only want coupons and nothing else? Ease that email burden before getting started on your communications. And if you're if you're new to the game or you haven't done it yet, then start off with the email list you already have. Or, or, or maybe your, your list of contacts that you already have. I'm actually about to do, uh, this same thing where, you know, I, for those who have followed me, you know that I was an executive assistant, also worked in the marketing, uh, was in charge of all the marketing for a couple of different logistics companies. And I have a lot of contacts that I have kept over the years. And I'm about to launch an e-commerce store. And a lot of them haven't heard from me in a while. So they're essentially going to be getting a cold email from me. So I, I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a believer in that cold emails can be are, are well served when they're done right. So if you're in a situation where you obtained, I don't think I, I obtained my email sketch in, in a sketch fashion. But if you're working with somebody who may have bought an email list or or may have secured an email list in a, probably an unethical way, there's a way to market to that email list where it's not super creepy. Um, you're not going to create like a bad taste in someone's mouth when they think about your brand. Um, and I just want to run through a, a, a few tips because it can cost you business if you don't segment your emails, even if it's a cold email, even if they've already subscribed to you, especially if it's a cold email, you want to make sure that you're you're segmenting those lists properly in the future, even if you are starting off by sending just a mass email to a bunch of different people, which is essentially what I'm going to have to do whenever I launch this e-commerce store. I have thousands and thousands of emails of contacts that I've worked with over the years that don't know I'm working on this e-store. So when I launch it, I want to launch it in a way that, hey, this is helpful for you and here's how. And I think that that's one of the more important takeaways when you're sending out a cold email is that you want to make sure that it's all about them. It's not about you. I mean, it's kind of about you, but you want to make it so that your Whatever you're trying to tell them about is going to solve a problem of theirs. And that's why they should st- they should continue to stay engaged with your emails, continue to open them. And extra bonus points, if you give a heads up, I've seen this done and, and I've actually responded positively to it where I've had a, you know, a, a business that didn't hear from for a while. They switched up their branding. They switched up their service offerings. And what they did is they sent out an email to all of their contacts, probably hundreds of thousands of people. But they said, this is the new direction that we're going to take. This is the new service offering that we have. And these are the kind of emails that we're going to be sending out on a regular basis. If you want to get these emails in the future, click this button. And then what you're doing is you're getting a double opt-in, which is great from email the the, the the companies that provide email marketing services, you know, like MailChimp, Constant Contact, these companies want to know that you're not spamming people to death. So they want to know that you've had people that have opted into your email list 
or have created a situation where it's a double opt-in. So say if you have an email list of, you know, th- this is the, the, the situation that I'm dealing with. Um, I have an email list that I'm going to upload to MailChimp. And then from there, I'm going to send them that exact message. This is what we're offering. Or no, this is your problem. This is our solution to that problem. And here is a link that you can click to get these messages in the future. If you don't want, if I don't hear from you, uh, if you don't click the link, then you're not going to ever hear from me again. Um, I'm never going to send you an email that you don't want. Uh, So that goes into my next tip. Make sure that you have the unsubscribe button front and center clear as day so that if somebody doesn't want to get your emails, they have a way to unsubscribe. There is nothing worse than having an email that you've unsubscribed from and then you continue to get those emails there. You won't, you will be sent to the spam folder so quick. You won't, and then before you know it, your domain is going to be treated just as a spam entity in general. So that's another situation where you want to keep in the front of your mind where even if somebody has been enjoying your content, maybe you just caught them on a bad day or maybe they're just, they're not in the industry anymore or or they don't, whatever reason that they have, you need to make sure that you're offering a way for those users to unsubscribe. And another example too of a bad, a, a cold email going wrong and why email segmentation is so very important from a business perspective. Because when I was working at a logistics company, there was one particular sales rep because she needed help with her email segmentation, not just at her level, but at a company-wide level. And this has to do with you know sales and leads and things like that, where this one woman, she had been working on a lead for a couple months. And then all of a sudden, the person that she was talking to reached out and said, I just got this email from another salesperson within your company. Um, we're not going to move forward with doing business with you anymore because if you don't know what's going on inside your own company, then we don't want you handling our business. And that business law, they lost a potential multi-million dollar account because people couldn't segment their email lists and people didn't know what leads were being worked and what leads weren't. And when they sent that cold email, it rubbed that person the wrong way and they lost that business opportunity just like that. And that is a perfect example of why you don't want to, you want to treat your audience and their time with respect. And so if you're offering valuable insight, if you're offering valuable information, then you need to present it in a way that's the most beneficial to your audience. And even then, they still might not want to hear from you. But you have to honor those requests with an unsubscribe button and making sure that the content of your emails is all about them. Now, I also think that there there is a way that you can... So say if you have like the, the, the mass email list and somebody doesn't opt in, but I think it's, you can switch that messaging around where, okay, so let, let's, let's take a, I guess a step back. So in one case in particular, a guy that I know bought an email list, hundreds of thousands of people on this email list, hundreds of thousands. And so what they did is instead of, using that as a lead opportunity. They just wanted to start sending out mass emails. Um, This is our, you know, for those who work in trucking and logistics, they were started sending out load available lists and or available load emails and people got them every single day and they couldn't report them as spam 
because there was no unsubscribe button. So not only did this company obtain this email list probably illegally and then started emailing all of these people in mass. So not only are you creating a bad sentiment, a bad temperament around your company, but then you're also, they didn't give the, the people the opportunity to unsubscribe. And what happened after that is their emails were reported as spam so much that their domain got a warning and they were no longer allowed. Well, they were allowed to send emails for now, but then they had to stop it. And once they stopped it, they had to file an appeal to their domain provider and in order to get that spam notification removed because then all of their legit- legitimate emails were then going to spam as well. So it was not only did it affect their marketing email messages, but it also affected their operation email messages. And and I think that that is just, it's, it's a, a case of people being lazy and not sending the messages that they intend to send to their intended audience. And it's just a lesson that it can really cost you, not just in the short term, like sending an email to 100,000 people seems real easy at the click of a button, but it can also cost you in so many ways that you don't foresee until possibly months or even years later. And so that's a situation where you can take the advice and, and learn from the lesson that this big company made and then reverse it and flip it to benefit you and to benefit your audience in the future, which is hopefully what this video has or, or this, this topic has done. Because I, I, I want you guys to learn from the mistakes that I see out there and that I've done myself. I, I mean, it is really, admittedly, it is, you know, easy to think about, well, oh my gosh, I could just go and buy, you know, an email list with a million people on it. And then that's how I'm going to get the word out about my new e-commerce. Or I don't want to do it that way. I don't want to make people mad. I want to provide them value and I want them to see the product that I have is valuable. And if you don't want my messages, that's perfectly fine. But I want to make sure the people that want my messages get them. And the best way to do that is to segment your email list and start collecting emails the right way. Respect people's time and segment your email list. Okay, going into the last segment of today's show is what I like to talk about with what I'm listening and what I'm watching. And this one's going to be a little bit of supply chain themed and not a little bit, a lot. So even if you're not in the supply chain industry, which I imagine most of you aren't, but Supply chain affects your entire life, whether you realize it or not. Um, it's how you get goods to and from your door, uh, in, into your fridges, into your closets. Um, it's how your office is. You know, supply chain is very important, especially the origins of, which is the origins of those products, which is, I think is becoming more of a concern for a lot of people. And especially with you know, industries like fast fashion and uh, just trying to be more globally conscious of where you choose to spend your money. I think that's a fair statement. Um, so one of the things that I binge watched recently is a Netflix series called Rotten. Uh, they're on season two. So if you really like the show, then you can go back and you can watch all of season one, which is, which is exactly what I did. But it showcases the complications around the supply chain of some of the items that you probably use on the daily. So it talks about water, wine, sugar, chocolate, edibles, and avocados. 
And it, it goes through, each episode is one topic. So like avocados, for example, they cover the supply chain of the farmers down in Mexico who are affected, who are now being held, some of them are being held at gunpoint by the drug cartel because avocados are insanely lucrative. So there's problems with at the very far, like at the farm level, at the trucking level, at uh, the distribution level, that there's all of these different things that are affecting the supply chain of how you get your products and ultimately what ends up in your fridges and in your closets and, and just in your home in general. And so it's a really, really fascinating look. I, it, they, they cover not only avocados, um, chocolate was another one where, you know, there's a small village in, in Africa that harvest like the the perfect cocoa bean and other tribes are coming in and they're trying to steal that perfect cocoa bean from the, these villagers who have who have lived there for generation upon generation and they're having to essentially fight for their lives and and fight for their livelihood and it's it's a fascinating look into how your products and how your some of your favorite products get to your doorstep and the ethical consumption of these products the ethical farming of some of these products that the, it, it's it's really it it makes you think more globally and it was just really one of those things that like you don't really think about all of the steps that it takes for you know a a, a pound of sugar to get into your shopping cart. You don't think of all of the steps that had to be taken, lives that were potentially lost because of it. And and getting that shipment from one place to another, uh, getting it from the manufacturer to the distributor, from, you know, one truck driver to, you know, that last mile delivery. It's really, really a fascinating look. So if you're interested in any of that, of, of what I just talked about, uh, look up Rotten. It's on Netflix. It's a, I think it's like a six or seven part series for season two. And then, like I said, they have a full season one. But season two was really, really well done. Um, I, I ended up going back and watching season one. And it some for some reason, I can't remember why, it didn't resonate as much. But season two is killer. Um, so it's killer content, uh, both literally and figuratively. Uh, but uh, definitely highly, highly recommend that watch. Next up on, on what I'm listening to and what I'm watching is Freight Waves. Freight Waves is a company that I have spoken at, that I have attended. They just recently had their, their big conference. So I believe this was their third conference because I went to their first one, Market Waves, about a year ago. Then I spoke at Transparency, which was back in May, and they've since rebranded these conference names to just Freight Waves Live. And so during the conference, it was, I mean, it was one of those situations where I was like super bummed that I couldn't be there, but... The great thing about Freight Waves is that they they were live streaming the entire conference. So I got a chance to be able to just watch live of all of this content that I normally would have been like, you know, in the front row of a conference just typing on, on you know, my computer and trying to take as many notes as possible and said, flip the script and I'm at home and I'm able to watch it on live stream. And so what's been great about them is that they they have so it's well, it's kind of good and it's kind of bad for me because they have so much content that it's difficult to keep up with all of it. And especially with with some of their like daily updates, which is something that the industry has needed for so long, but I don't necessarily need it. I don't necessarily need to know, you know, the weather patterns and how it's affecting, you know, shipping for the day. I don't need to know that kind of like breaking news that a lot of other companies, you know, carriers and truckers and uh, 3PLs, they, they need to know 
that type of content and they need to watch it on a daily basis. I like more of the, uh, the, the, the macro view, the eagle eye view. And so what's great is that they've taken all of that content, the content that was at their conference, content that they produce on a regular basis now, and they've put it in one central location, and that's the Freight Waves TV app. And it just launched all major, you know, Android, for you Android people, um, it's, it's, it's out there for you guys too. Um, it's, it's definitely in the Apple Store. Um, I've already downloaded it. You can stream it to multiple different devices, um, but it has all of the best content that they have that isn't necessarily like breaking news. They have all of that content right there for you. They have it played out too. So where you can, or not played out, but they have it segmented out per different shows. So you can make your own playlist. Say you're only interested. I think they have like something like 10 or 11 shows now, which is insane. Um, so they're definitely, they're pumping out. It goes back to like my point of they're just pumping out so much content that sometimes it's difficult to keep up with on a daily basis. But because they have this app now, I can go in, I can make my own playlist, get notifications specifically for that playlist. And then I can binge watch it much like I would, you know, a Netflix series. Um, but I can binge watch it on, on my time and on demand. So it's really, really great. If you're in the industry, um, in any capacity, I would highly recommend downloading, uh, the Freight Waves TV app. And then another thing, keeping it in sort of, you know, the supply chain family is the Let's Know Things podcast. I've been a big fan of this podcast for a couple years now. I listen religiously. Uh, Colin Wright, he drops a new episode every single week and he covers a variety of different topics. And one of his more recent episodes is right up my alley and is probably right up a lot of your guys' alley. Uh, But it's the one day shipping episode. So if you look up Let's Know Things podcast, find their one day shipping episode because it highlights the history of e-commerce, the Amazon effect of e-commerce, which Amazon, I think it was reported the other day, that they now make up more than 50% of all e-commerce purchases, which is insane. It's a billion-dollar industry, multi-billion-dollar industry, and they take up half of that market share, which is insane. Um, but they, he also talks about the issue of reverse logistics, last-mile delivery, which if you're not familiar with each of those phrases, reverse logistics is the... It's the the specialization for a lot of companies that they have to manage their returns because with the growth of e-commerce, you now have to, as a retailer, you are almost forced to offer free return shipping for a lot of your a, a lot of your products, and this is creating a growing problem with a lot of retailers, especially like high fashion retailers. Like I think it's BCBG that a couple years ago they were caught setting their returns on fire. Because they didn't want the returns, the return merchandise, they they didn't want to sell it at a discount. They didn't want to donate it because they didn't want, you know, sort of a lower class, and I'm using air quotes here, a lower class of people to be seen wearing their products. So they're literally burning the their product instead of trying to sell it or or trying to donate it or or doing something goddamn good with the with the product. So Reverse logistics is is a big issue, and I think. But by, by the way, just a little side note: BCBG when they got caught doing that, um, they changed their stance on it, and so now they're going to start donating the clothes or whatever. But reverse logistics is is going to become a growing issue for a lot of companies, a lot of retailers out there. And I think what what's an interesting concept too, and this wasn't actually mentioned in the show, but it's uh, dealing with. Same day shipping, dealing with uh, two day shipping, even it's a growing environmental concern as well. He actually does talk about the growing environmental concern in that issue or or in that episode. But the the 
when you think about, you know, trying to be like a responsible consumer and trying to purchase responsibly when you can, uh, I mean, I'm not against, you know, getting an outfit, you know, two day shipped to me when I need it and I don't have time to run out to the mall or, or go to a responsible, you know, whatever. Um, a lot of times you don't have, you don't have the time to be responsible, but if you do have the time, uh, you should make time for it. You should try to be responsible, but uh, the last mile delivery. So it's it's very, very cost effective to ship your goods, you know, even through via air, uh, throw uh, one warehouse to another. That part is very, very cost effective for the majority of retailers. But it's estimated that more than 40% of a product's price is simply related to the last mile delivery. And the last mile delivery is whenever, you know, it ends up Whatever your product, you know, that dress that you just bought or that, you know, those shoes that you just bought, if they end up at a distribution center in your city, getting a truck to pick that up and then to deliver it to your house, that is the most expensive part of the shipping process and largely the reason why you're paying so you're you're paying the prices that you're paying when it comes to a product. It's this forty percent of the product price is simply related to getting that product shipped to your door. And so that that's what this episode, one day shipping episode on Let's Know Things that they highlight. And and I think that it sort of is a bigger sort of a, a, a bigger scope on what is going to continuously be a problem. Reverse logistics, last mile, deli- last mile delivery. And then also how do retailers compete with a company like Amazon? I think it was Target yesterday that they just released their earnings call and it, and it was drastically it, drastically better than what a lot of people thought that they where they would be. And their biggest reason for that is that they've started offering the curbside pickup and they're also doing the shipped from the store. So if you think about it, Target has locations all across this com- all, all across this country. And so then they can act as a distribution location and they can use their own company trucks within those stores and they can do the same day shipping or ship from the store. Or what's even more beneficial to them is if they do either the curbside pickup or in-store pickup because it gets that much needed foot traffic into the store and that, that's what... That's the number one problem that retailers are facing right now is getting that foot traffic into the store. And so Target had uh, an insane, and I want to. I'm look, trying to look up the stat right now of, of what they actually. I think it was somewhere like ninety percent of cost cutting is resulted strictly from these ship from store and the curbside pickup, which is an insane. So it, obviously you're going to be seeing more of this, you know, from Walmart. I read because of uh, Target success. With this program, Walmart has now increased uh, their their profile for picking up groceries. Um, that that pick up grocery you know delivery section of the stores now. Whenever you drive by it, I think that's implemented in like more than three thousand stores across the country, and it's growing. So you'll start to see more retailers like Walmart's, like Kohl's, um, a lot of these bigger box retailers that are going to try to take advantage of of this same strategy that Target has, and and they. they Obviously, it's clearly working. So the one-day shipping episode from Let's Know Things, it's a really great deep dive into sort of the history of e-commerce and how quicker shipping times are transforming this country really in such a short time span. So it's a really interesting listen, and I know that that's, you know, very much like a, you know, what I'm listening, what I'm watching is, is very much like supply chain dominated, but if I'm not 
if besides these these three pieces of of content sources that I just mentioned, if I'm not digesting that, then I'm probably watching Disney Plus. So it's it's one or the other. I I try to keep the you know the business and the personal side of things. Uh, I like to keep those ideas flowing. So. Hopefully you'll check those out and I'll put links to all everything that I mentioned in this show. You can always find those links to everything that I talked about in the show notes. I'll also put this up in a blog format on bonjourwithblythe.com. You can also be on the lookout for segments of this show and future shows on my other website, my sister website, digitaldispatch.io. That is transportation and logistics focused. So if any of that is of interest to you, just be sure to check out either bonjourwithblythe.com, which is more entrepreneurial focused, or you can check out digitaldispatch.io. And then I also would be remiss if I didn't mention, you know, social media channels. You can find me on most platforms, including TikTok now, which I am experimenting with that platform and I am loving it so far. I know a lot of people think that it's just, you know, it's a, a it's an app for kids, but that that's where it starts. Like it starts with the kids, then it moves to the teenagers, and then it moves to the young adults, and then it moves to, you know, the the 30 plus people like me. And then before you know it, like when your grandparents and your, you know, your crazy aunt from Kentucky, like joins the platform, that's when you know it's it's probably time to move your attention to another place. But TikTok I'm having a lot of fun with that. It's making me really surprisingly more comfortable with video editing. So I think that, you know, in, in doing more video editing is is, is definitely in my future. Um, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. So you can search for me on TikTok at Blythe Brum. Also Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all the norms at Blythe Brum. YouTube as well. I have, you know, my personal channel, which is maybe where you're watching or digesting this show as we speak. So you can look for me on there at Blythe Brum. And then I also have my other two YouTube channels. And that is a marketing focused one. And then also digitaldispatch.io. You can find links to all those on my website, bonjourwithblythe.com. And I think I've plugged that like seven times now. So I'm sure you probably either already x off of this. Um, but if you haven't, until next time, my name is Blythe. I appreciate your time and attention to the show. And I hope to see you soon. Thanks.